Brandon Cassidy is back tonight. Brandon, round of applause for Brandon. If you don't know him, be sure that you begin to know him before he leaves tonight. He's pretty cool. Glad that all the rest of you are here as well. Welcome. Tonight, as we continue our reading of the story of the deluge, we begin to trace in it the patterns of salvation, dimensions of that pattern that we can continue to trace from this moment all the way through the end of the Christian scriptures. I want to give you three or four words that can organize some of the basic movements of that pattern and that are going to organize some of the observations that I'm going to make about this passage here in just a minute. Those three words are judgment, deliverance, and recreation. Judgment, deliverance, and recreation. And that deliverance word, in parentheses in your mind, you can put the word covenant. So it's judgment, and then deliverance by covenant, and recreation. And a broad question that we need to keep in mind as we're reading this story tonight, and as well as the nights that are to follow, is why should God have done it this way? If, if it is the case that what the Lord is doing in the story of the deluge is that he is beginning to save damaged creation, why should he have done it this way instead of some other way? Let's begin with that first dimension of the pattern, judgment. Beginning at verse 11, I'm going to briefly come back to those other verses before this in just a few, a few minutes, but we'll start at verse 11. Here we see the Lord looking upon the corruption of the earth. And what the Lord sees as he looks upon the corruption of the earth, our reading specifies twice, is that he sees that the earth is filled with violence. So we get that in verse 11, and then we get it again. Uh, the earth is filled with violence, and God saw the earth, and behold, it was corrupt, for all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. And then when God begins to speak to Noah, he's, he specifically points out that the earth is filled with violence through the earth's creatures. So violence is highlighted as specifying the shape of the corruption that God looks at, and in response to which the Lord will release the deluge. And I just want to highlight this briefly because up until this point, violence is something that has figured very prominently in the outworking of the fall. Of course, maybe most prominently in the story of Cain and Abel, but also in the way that Lamech sort of embodies this, this is at the end of chapter four, he embodies a kind of um, advanced state of fallenness and that he's become not just violent, but brazenly violent. And then here again, we have violence singled out as kind of epitomizing the corruption of the fallen world. And in response to the corruption that the Lord sees, what is reiterated almost painfully in both chapter 6 and chapter 7, is that God is going to kill everything. I will destroy, God says. Again and again and again, in only slightly different ways, God keeps saying to Noah and to us, I'm going to kill everything that is on the earth. It's reiterated at least four times, twice in verse 13, and then again in chapter 6, verse 17, and then again in chapter 7, verse 4, God is the architect of the deluge. He is the one, like this isn't something that happens as an accident that he merely allows. He is the orchestrator of the deluge. And he's very explicit about its purpose 
which is to kill corrupted creation. Moreover, Genesis takes pains to say how God is going to accomplish this snuffing out of all of creation. We read in verse 13, it's going to be with the earth. God said to Noah, I have determined to make an end of all flesh, for the earth is filled with violence to them. Behold, I will destroy them with the earth. Likewise, in verse 17, we read, Behold, I will bring a flood of waters upon the earth to destroy all flesh. This might seem like an like a unimportant detail, that, that this phrase, like, with the earth, but it is significant. Creation is going to be immersed, engulfed in a deluge of water, overwhelmed in a torrent of divine judgment against the violence of humanity, but not in like an abstract way, but in an elemental, concrete way. It's going to be with water. The earth is going to be the means of killing the world. This isn't going to be a painless or unconscious euthanasia. God doesn't take creatures out of existence in an instant, sort of like Thanos style or in some other way. God is going to drown creation. There is a concreteness to this killing. And this is important not because it points to God's cruelty or something, but because it begins to reveal what judgment is. That judgment is not just consequences for sin, but that the shape of judgment usually has an element of, of being given over to the very things that we have chosen in sin, or defining ourselves apprehended by the very things that our sin is damaging. So the earth is filled with human violence. The earth itself is filled with human violence. And it's with the earth that God is going to kill sinful humanity. The earth filled with our violence becomes itself the means of human death. It is almost as if the earth is vomiting back onto humans the corruption with which they have filled it. Everything that is on the earth shall die. Again and again and again, Genesis reiterates this, such as at the end of verse 17. But then verse 18 goes on to say, but I will establish my covenant with you. And here we begin to bring into view that second dimension of the rhythm or the pattern of salvation, which is deliverance, and deliverance specifically through covenant. But I will establish my covenant with you. Concretely, deliverance is going to be provided for through the construction of an ark. But what that ark instantiates in the world is a covenant. The purpose of the covenant that the Lord is going to establish with Noah and Noah's family, the purpose of that covenant is life. It is to keep alive humanity and all living creatures. So if on the one hand, judgment is sort of signified by this motif of I will destroy, 
I'm going to wipe out that we noted being repeated four times. The phrase to keep alive is what sort of instantiates or it's the motif that signifies to us the significance of deliverance in our reading tonight. Just as our reading reiterates again and again that God is going to destroy the earth, so too again and again it reiterates to keep alive. At the end of verse 16, nine, or excuse me, verse 19 in chapter 6, as well as at the end of verse 20 in chapter 6, and then again in verse 3 of chapter 7, we hear that the purpose of what God is calling Noah to do and the purpose of the covenant that he's making is to keep alive everything that God has made in, these, in this handful of folks and in the two-by-twos of all the animals. So it is that just as relentlessly as we are forced to understand that God is decisively ending creation, simultaneously and just as emphatically, these verses emphasize that God is pursuing life. So this ending is a beginning also. Another thing to note about deliverance through covenant is that God is the one that establishes the covenant. He says, I will establish my covenant with you. In verse 18. The Lord, as I'm going to talk about a little bit later on, is the ultimate sustainer of this deliverance. He is the one that will establish this covenant. It is his word, his action, and his character upon which this covenant of deliverance depends. I will establish the covenant. So God establishes it. And yet, that God saves by way of covenant. What that word covenant means, it also means that God saves humanity in collaboration with humanity. Which I think is maybe the most surprising thing to me as I continue to study this story. And it's the most astonishing light that it sheds on so much of the rest of the story of the way that God saves throughout Scripture. God establishes covenant. And yet what that word means is that God chooses to save the world in collaboration with humanity. A covenant is something that God makes room for human beings to have a role in, to participate in. So God establishes this covenant with Noah, yet what it means that God is establishing this covenant with Noah is that Noah has work to do, like a lot of work to do. He has to build an enormous ship, an ark, which will be very freaking important. It's going to be the concrete means through which God is going to provide deliverance. A lot of what we just read is God telling Noah how to make the ark, how big to make it, how many decks it's supposed to have, that it's supposed to have rooms, and what kind of wood it's supposed to be made out of. It's instructions for a massive building project and instructions for what I guess we might call like a massive like zoological project or maybe biological. I don't know what you would call it, right? But a gathering and a sustaining of all of the creatures of the earth. So that God 
establishes a covenant means that God saves the world collaboratively with human beings. He did not have to do it that way. And it would be fair to ask, like, why? Like, how, what? It's so inefficient for God to wait on a dude to learn how to build a big freaking boat. And who knows how long God had to wait till there was a dude that was living right enough to be willing to respond to the summons and follow the instructions to do it. And then even once that dude is there, God entrusts him with a heck of a lot. I mean, it seems like there's a lot more efficient ways that God could have chosen to do it. And yet, he, he saves by way of covenant, which means he wills to let this pattern of salvation unfold in part through the labor of human hands. Noah embodies obedience as the means by which we participate in God's covenantal act of salvation. Obedience is really the thing that we can say about Noah with a great deal of certainty and clarity. That seems to be the thing that is emphasized about him most in our reading tonight. And it's, it's by his obedience that he participates in God's covenant. So our, our reading tonight began in verse 9 by saying that Noah was a righteous man. He was blameless in his generation and that he walked with God. And if we want to ask, in what does that righteousness consist, we don't know anything. Nothing is explicitly said about Noah's past, about how he was living before this, that made him visible to God as someone that was righteous. The only thing we have that flushes out for us what the heck it means that he walked with God and that he was righteous is what happens once God calls him to do this stuff. And, and that is all about his obedience. Again and again and again, that's what's, what's reiterated about him. That's important because if you remember, we noted way back in the beginning of Genesis in chapter 2, that commandment and therefore obedience is an original feature of creation. Adam and Eve, unfallen humanity, they were addressed by God in the grammar of commandment. Commandment is not just something that entered into creation as a corrective to fallenness. There's something original about it. There's something intrinsic to our creaturehood that is meant to be obedient to the will of God. And more obviously, of course, the fall takes the shape of disobedience to the Lord's commandment. And so if you want to review that, you can look, at, you can look around uh, verse 17 or 16 in chapter 2. You can look in chapter 3 when the Lord begins to address Adam after he's taken of the fruit of the knowledge of good and evil. And the thing that the story turns upon is obedience and disobedience. And so when we read the end of verse 9 in chapter 6, that Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation, and that he walked with God, and that that's fleshed out by verse 22. Noah did this. He did all that God commanded him. And Noah did all that the Lord commanded him. We read in verse 5 of chapter 7. And then in verse 9 in chapter 7, we read again, two by two, male and female, went into the ark with Noah as God had commanded Noah. 
it's pretty impossible not to recognize that Noah in some ways contrasts the disobedience of Adam. So obedience is the way that Noah participates in the covenant through which God is beginning to recreate and deliver the world. But why should God have done it this way? Why should God save humanity in a collaborative manner? I think so often we envision what it means to be God in the abstract. We're like, we think about divine action as being, um, what, what's like kind of interesting to us about it is how like depersonalized or non-relational that it could be. I think in some ways it would make more sense to us for God to act sheerly on the basis of what he could do. So we find ourselves saying things like, I mean, if God wanted to, he could just do X, Y, and Z. Make horses purple or snap his fingers and fix everything or I don't know, whatever it is. Like if God wanted to, he could do this. We think about divine action. We tend to think about it as this depersonalized, non-relational power. But the God that we meet in scripture is unrelentingly relational in everything that he does. Sure, he could. He could snap his fingers. He could do it without humanity. But that is not the way he does it. He does this collaboratively. I was reading um, a sermon by a guy named Anselm the other day. He said this. This is about a different character in the Bible. But he said, he who could create all things from nothing. He's this, this, guy's re- this is like an Advent sermon. He's reflecting on, on Jesus, like on the incarnation. He's sort of trying to answer the question like, why would God decide to save the world by becoming a human being? And Anselm says, he who could create all things from nothing would not remake his ruined creation without Mary. He who could create all things from nothing would not remake his ruined creation without Mary. That's a fact. Inefficient as it may seem to us, meandering as a course of salvation that it it causes it to be, the Lord is unrelentingly relational in the way that he brings about salvation in Scripture. It's not in the snap of fingers, but in an unhurried and collaborative pilgrimage, covenant. It's a salvation unfolds, not in an instant, but across as this kind of unhurried and collaborative pilgrimage that God invites humanity to participate in. And covenant is a word, one way to think about it, it's a word that names the major milestones or the waypoints on that pilgrimage. You tracking with me? That third word, recreation. In short here, all I want to say is listen to the way these verses sound and then go back and listen to the way that the creation narrative sounds and note how similar some of the language is here. So something as simple as the reiteration of male and female over and over in the way that that absolutely demarcated some of the basic rhythm of God first making the world, or the phrase according to their kinds, or the attention that is given to feeding creation, feeding the voyagers on the ark, 
and how significant food is in the story, the first story of creation at the beginning of Genesis. Or even something like the fact that there's a seven-day period from the time that everyone goes into the ark until the time that the floodwaters are released upon the earth. There's a sense that the clock is getting reset here. So salvation takes the form of recreation. God isn't just fixing something that's broken. He's recreating the world that he has made. So just to summarize here, we're, we're tracing the patterns of salvation as that pattern emerges in the story of the deluge, in judgment, in deliverance through a covenant, and the way that all of that together takes the shape of recreation. And in terms of sheer scale, I just want to admit how much larger the judgment piece of this pattern is liable to loom in our imaginations. It may seem that the judgment part of the pattern far outweighs the deliverance dimension of this story. There's only eight or so people in the ark measured against the untold drowned multitudes. Two of each animal against all the innumerable teeming flocks and herds and populations drowned under the waters. It can seem then that the hope of redemption in this story is almost too small to matter. That it's dwarfed by the horror of recompense. That hope is as dwarfed in scale in this story as the ark buffeted and all but swallowed up on the horizon by the unbounded vastness of the waters. But the reality or the legitimacy of the way that God brings about salvation to the world is not something that we can verify by mere math. Rather, once more, we have to take note, this is how the Lord has seen fit to save. Not by rolling out salvation as a kind of universal campaign, as an overwhelming tide that rolls irresistibly across the land, but by concentrating salvation in one tiny place, the ark, Noah, and his family. Salvation is concentrated in that comparatively minuscule site on the globe, in that boat, just as the life of what might one day be a great tree can be concentrated in a minuscule seed. That's the pattern through which God sees fit to save the world. To begin to pivot to reflecting on what it might mean for us to find ourselves addressed by this passage. Not just to read it, but to respond to it, to put it into practice. It seems to me that the obvious sort of vein to mine is, is obedience, is a reflection on Noah's obedience. So I think very broadly what I want to explore here is what difference does it make to allow the grammar of commandment and of obedience and of disobedience to have its proper place in our relationship with God. To reflect upon how primary or not primary, those are the terms in which we understand our life with the Lord. The terms of command and obedience and disobedience. So I got a lot of stuff I wanna say 
about obedience. This, the first couple things I want to say about it are kind of uh, scriptural and theological. So I'm sort of laying some groundwork here. So the first thing I want to point out is that faith is the heart of obedience. It's tempting. It always kind of has been tempting, I think, to try to divorce these two things. It's maybe especially tempting for us as Christians after the Protestant Reformation to think that, you know, Jews and Catholics were into obedience, but we now know that what we're supposed to do is be saved by faith. But scripturally speaking, it's very clear that faith is the heart of obedience. That's one thing that should be really clear from our gospel reading tonight. Peter says, command me, and I'll come to you on the waters. And what goes wrong when he can't walk on the water anymore is his faith. Faith is the heart of obedience. With that in mind, I want you to think about Noah's righteousness. Because I think there's so little detail about Noah that it can almost seem unrelatable. Just like Noah was a righteous guy. And he's like this radical minority report. And he does what God says when apparently no one else is. And um, like I said, I think it can almost seem unrelatable. And so his, his obedience is really important. But I also want to take the full, long, and more accurate view of Noah's obedience. Because Noah's righteousness is conspicuously incomplete if you know the rest of his story. Later on, after the flood, he's going to... His story is going to become one almost immediately of drunkenness and some ambiguous sexual inappropriateness and a kind of mercilessness in relationship to his son. Not things that we want to imitate in Noah's life. So it is both the case that it's right for Genesis to, to point to Noah and say there's something for us to see in him. And yet we also need to recognize that his righteousness is painfully incomplete. And Genesis is just as honest about that in the shape of telling his story. So though his righteousness is exemplified in his obedience, we need to interpret Noah's righteousness along the same lines that Paul interprets Abraham's righteousness in a place like Romans chapter 4. We're not going to go all the way into the book of Romans right now because it's its own bag of tricks. But suffice it to say that a lot of the argument of Romans turns upon what to make of Abraham's righteousness. Paul's argument kind of stands or falls on how we interpret the Bible calling Abraham righteous. And the point that Paul makes about Abraham is he says that it's, it's not something in his flesh. It's not just his willpower that made him righteous. What made him righteous is his faith in the Lord, which begins to lay the groundwork for Paul to say, it's not really his righteousness, actually. It's something that points to the Lord and, and away from Abraham. This belief in God, this trust that we see exemplified in really important ways in certain Old Testament characters, it prefigures, in other words, it prefigures the crucial role that we Christians will later come to claim for faith in salvation. It proves what Christians will later argue about the unparalleled significance of faith. As I said earlier, that faith is the heart of obedience. And so that, that initial thing, right, like, like resituating the incomplete but nonetheless important aspects of Noah's faith, his righteousness, his obedience, this leads to two other important things that we need to see. The first is that our salvation ultimately depends upon Jesus's obedience, not on our own. Our salvation ultimately depends on Jesus' obedience 
not our own. Only Jesus is fully righteous. The New, the New Testament descriptions of Jesus, they highlight, among other things, the fact that he was obedient. So, for example, in the book of Philippians, he was obedient to the point of death. And the New Testament contrasts explicitly and narratively his obedience with our disobedience. So in another place in the book of Romans, we read, For as by one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners. That's Adam's disobedience. So by the one man's obedience, that's Jesus. So by the one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. Now the law came in to increase trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. At any rate, the gospel narratives draw this same contrast between Jesus' obedience and ours, an incomplete obedience and a complete obedience. Jesus commands the 12 apostles, for example, to take up their cross and follow him. We talked about that last week. They don't do it when the moment comes. At least they don't do it right away. Only Jesus goes to the cross and that group of folks. It's only Jesus that takes up his cross. So our salvation ultimately depends upon Jesus' obedience, not on our own. And yet, if we stop there, we will go tragically wrong. And many Christians have stopped there and have gone really tragically wrong. Because being saved by Jesus objectively changes our capacity to obey. And working out our own salvation has everything to do with growing in obedience. And so it's not our obedience that saves us. We are not capable of saving ourselves. But also, that we are saved reconfigures our capacity to obey. And there's no such thing as working out our salvation that is not a process of growing in obedience. Jesus' obedience makes it so that we can obey. And I mean this in two different ways. Firstly, the choice to obey or not to obey is nothing new. That's like an Old Testament thing and a New Testament thing. But what is new, the New Testament seems to suggest that the possibility of obeying has actually been altered by Christ. And I, I don't want to pretend that that's uncomplicated or straightforward. But, but getting saved and being filled with the Holy Spirit, the New Testament seems to suggest in multiple places, makes a life of following God and doing what God says possible for us in a way that it absolutely was not before. So our actual capacity for obedience is changed by Christ. Secondly, we can obey because Jesus was obedient even to the point of death. By which I mean, we can obey even if, obe if, even if obeying kills us. Because we've watched Jesus obey to the point of death and then triumph over death. And this matters a lot. Because a lot of our reasons for wanting to disobey the Lord basically come down to the fact that we don't want to die. A lot of our justification for not doing things that scripture explicitly commands us to do comes down to the fact that we think it's okay to really live our lives in avoidance of death. 
But the fact that Jesus was obedient in such a way that he got himself killed takes that off the table as an excuse for us. Because we Christians are ostensibly people who believe that death is not the end. I know that's tough. But the resurrection means that we can obey. Obedience calls forth creative agency rather than destroying it. Obedience and creativity are not opposites. Obedience and authenticity are not opposites. I think this is an important point. Because I think we have a tendency to think of, of those things in, as if they were opposites. Like if we think that we have to obey, it seems like what that means is that we don't ever do anything with our own actual agency or choices. That we just sort of mechanically do what someone else tells us to do. But, but think about the fact that as detailed as these instructions seem to be that God gives to Noah, Right? Like there's kind of a lot of verses here about cubits and stock and gopher wood. They seem kind of detailed on the surface, but would that be enough for you to know how to build a ship? It's actually like the bare freaking minimum. And yet those are the instructions which Genesis is like, look how obedient Noah was. He did the cubits. He made the boat like God told him to. My point is this, between the command and the finished product, there's an enormous amount of room for Noah to learn and develop his abilities and to develop things that are his weaknesses and figure stuff out and try different things. Answering that summons requires not like the suppression of his agency, but for his agency to like swell and develop. He's being entrusted with something, not just being micromanaged. Everything Noah's commanded to do, it's going to call forth his creativity. It's going to require him to grow as a craftsman. And I can tell you as a person that's actually done a great deal of woodworking. I'm not like amazing at it, okay? But I've done a good bit of it. Like the table in our house. I didn't just build it, not to brag here. I didn't just build it. And it's a small table, admittedly. But I started with trees, and then I built it, okay? So I've done a lot of woodworking, and I can tell you that the work of building an ark absolutely could not have been mere drudgery for Noah. It could not have been this mere, like, punch in the clock, I got to do what the boss tells me to do. It had to have been attended with an immense and varied satisfaction and with all kinds of what we maybe would call personal fulfillment. Like I think for all the crazy ridiculous amount of days that Noah's shut up in the ark, however bored he might've been, I promise you there were times that he'd be like, look at that right there, I did that. And then he could remember how he had to learn how to sharpen a freaking ax before he made this thing. Does that make sense? So obedience doesn't require abandonment of our agency or our dignity or our personality. It just requires trust. Obedience, this is another thing. Obedience is granular. It's gradual and it's cumulative. Another thing Noah's ark, or Noah, Noah's labor in building the ark can teach us 
is like the scale of what, of what we need to be looking for when, when we try to answer the question, what does God want me to do? I think it's really easy to think about like the ark and be like, it's big and grand. And Noah, Noah built that big grand thing. And in the same way, so often in my own life, when I listen to other people talk, we can kind of bog down on the question of like, what has God commanded me to do? Because the scale that we're trying to answer that question in is like way too big, right? Like, um, you know, how do we, in a, in a time that Christianity is crumbling and that the church is ripping itself apart along the lines of not only political division, but also along questions of, of human sexuality and in the, amid the sort of turmoil of a sexual revolution, how can the church like stand firm on what it really believes about scripture, but also not fail to be like communicating love to people, even if we disagree with them? Like, yes, that is what we have to do. That and other things. You know what I mean? That's kind of like the ark. And if we ask, like, what are you, what is God commanding you to do right now? Probably the answer is like, Go meet that joker you don't know at LBL. Be sure you talk to Brandon before he leaves tonight. Get his cell phone number. I'm not trying to point you out here or, you know, call you out here, Brandon, but I'm just saying. Befriend people you don't know. What about that scale? Obedience is granular and gradual and cumulative. It's incremental. It's mundane. It's ordinary. Obedience looks like building an ark. But what that looks like at any given stage is inglorious and diligent, and gradual. And that's good news. It's relieving. God didn't say to Noah, save the world. He said, go find some gopher wood trees. Whatever the heck those things are. What is God telling us to do? He's telling you to quit being a jerk to your roommate. That's what he's commanding you to do. He's telling you to wash the dishes in your apartment even though you're not the one who left them dirty. I'm like, if I, if I ask myself this question, like, what is God asking you to do? I mean, a lot of the answers to that questions are like things that I already committed to do a long time ago. Like, cherish my wife. That's something I stood right here almost 15 years ago and said, vowed in front of God and everybody that I was going to do. I'm going to cherish her. And I do a pretty good job of cooking her awesome meals and of taking her kids to school and making a paycheck, etc. But like, am I cherishing her? I can grow in that way. It's probably a big enough job for me to be getting on with. I sat down this morning. I woke up at like 4 a.m. I sat down, I was here by like five something. And I sat down this morning in front of my Bible and what I wanted to do was, was to begin work crafting a sermon, which by comparison to what I ended up having to do is kind of grand in scale. But before I crafted my sermon, I had to, to take time to apologize to two different long-term friends for ways that I have spoken to them just in the last 24 hours with carelessness. Before I could obey God on the scale of my vocation, He's called me to be a preacher of the gospel. 
Before I could obey God on the scale of my vocation, I had to obey Jesus' commandment about reconciliation and confession and forgiveness. I had to go apologize to my friends for speaking carelessly to them. Speaking of which, if you want to take the temperature of your obedience or your disobedience, relationships is a great place to do it. It's not the only place, but like, if you want to find out if you're being obedient or disobedient, check on your relationships. Firstly, because so many of Jesus' commandments, so much of scripture comes down to just different ways we're supposed to love each other, different ways we're supposed to treat each other, what we owe each other, how we're supposed to put others in front of ourselves. So that's one reason why it's a really great way, if you want to find out if you're being obedient or not, to start by checking in on your relationships. But maybe even before that, relationships are a great place to start thinking about obedience at the level of, do you have any? Do you have any relationships? That's a real question. Because we live in a world where it's increasingly easy not to have any. We live in a world where the moguls of so-called technological progress are deliberately trying to, to make our world be Terminator or the Matrix. They are deliberately inventing more and more ways for us to interact at a physical remove from each other in worlds that are increasingly virtual and increasingly curated entirely to our own convenience. So sure, you might have a lot of interactions people somewhere that actually amount to zero lived embodied relationships. Do you have any relationships? Because beside the alienations of technology and social media, we live in a time where it's increasingly easy to mistake your therapist, or if not your therapist, at least therapeutic technique for actual community. Just to go on the record here, I've got a therapist, so I'm not coming for them, okay? But hear me out. We live in a time where words like boundaries and mental health have all but become blank checks for doing whatever the heck we want to do. We live in an age where the self-help industry has finally triumphed, not only over religion, but over the basic creaturely need to be helped by someone other than ourselves, by other people, by a community. So look, by all means, have a therapist. Listen to the Jocko Willick podcast. Read his books. Take cold showers. Eat kale. Get shredded. But also have friends. Also have friends. Do you have any friends? Do you think your classmates have friends? Here's a test to answer that question. Who in your life can really get a hold of you? And I don't mean like get you on the phone or get you to respond to a text. I mean like who can get you in a conversation? Who in your life could actually correct you? Could actually either tell you directly or give you an opportunity to see for yourself that you're wrong? And you need to do something differently. Likewise, who in your life can speak the words of encouragement to you that you long for, whether you realize it or not, but that no matter how many times you think positively about it, you can't really tell it to yourself? 
Who in your life knows you well enough to encourage you? Where in your life are you knowing others and being known in such a way that you might have to look in someone's eyes and say, I'm sorry, please forgive me. Or look in someone's eyes and say, more times than you want to, I forgive you. The last thing I want to say about, about obedience is that obedience is an offering. And by offering, I mean to differentiate obedience from, like, a strategy, okay? Or from any kind of a technique of control. Obedience is an offering. It's something that we entrust to the Lord. That we offer to him in faith that he can make it be something that's good and useful. This may seem weird, but here's what I mean. The ark doesn't have a rudder or a steering wheel. That's something that's pretty different about this boat from most of the boats that you know about. All of those ones have some way to steer the boat. The ark is not steered by anyone. There are no instructions to that fun captain's wheel in this description of cubits and stuff. The ark doesn't have a rudder or a steering wheel. And ultimately, what we're going to read later on in the story is that after all of this work, after all of this collaborative obedience, that it's going to be God that's got to shut Noah and his family and all of the seed of creation into the ark. God will shut them in. And what we're going to read is that the outcome of this voyage upon the surface of the waters, it's not going to be determined by all that work that Noah did. It's going to be determined by God remembering Noah and his family and everything that's inside of that ark. So it is Noah's to obey, but it is God's to save. That's what it means that obedience is an offering. To move toward a close here. As Christians, we read the story of the deluge from the vantage point of the new covenant that has been revealed in Jesus. Just as there is a terrible and yet a saving concreteness in the story of the flood, so too in Jesus, the pattern of salvation continues to unfold, not in the divine snap of fingers, but in an amazing, collaborative, and indeed a terrible concreteness in the murdered and the resurrected flesh of Christ. And in fact, even though the waters, when we get to the end of reading the story of the deluge, even though they may seem entirely to have receded, in reality, the waters of the deluge continue to flow through the pages of Scripture long after the story of Noah, on through every successive covenant. And they flow finally off the pages of Scripture into our very midst in the body of Christ. The flood gives us the first pattern by which to comprehend the shape of what's happening on the cross. So that when we call, so, so that what, one of the words we use to describe Jesus' crucifixion is baptism. We say that every single week. We say, by the baptism of Jesus, suffering, death, and resurrection. God gave birth to the church 
and he delivered us from slavery to sin and death, and he made with us a new covenant by water and the Spirit. The waters of the deluge continue to flow for us. For when Christ bore in his flesh all the judgment that was due to a sinful humanity, when Christ hung lifeless upon the wood of the cross and a soldier ran him through with a spear, the wound sprang forth not just with blood, but with water. When we get to the end of the story of the flood, at the end of this quarter, we're going to hear God promise that he's never again going to destroy the earth with water. And that's true. But if we're paying attention, we Christians should recognize that God is still in the business of saving the world by drowning folks. That, after all, is what God's doing in our baptism. Christians have long recognized that what baptism is is a ritual drowning. When we bring a person who's about to become a Christian to the brink of the baptismal font, we pray to God, pour out your Holy Spirit on us gathered here and to bless this gift of water and they who come to receive it, to wash away their sin, to clothe them in righteousness throughout their life. And listen to this, so that dying and being raised with Christ, they may share in Jesus' final victory. What we say right before we baptize people is, God, pour out your Holy Spirit because we're about to drown these folks. And we want them to come up from these waters alive with your life. By the way, that's what Paul also said in the book of Romans tonight. It's not just our fancy baptismal liturgy. Indeed, among the most significant things Jesus says about the meal of communion that we're about to take is that this meal is the inauguration and the participation of the new covenant. This is my blood, Jesus says to us at this table. My blood of the new covenant poured out for you and for many for the forgiveness of sins. Though God kills in the deluge, God is killed on the cross. Though in the deluge, sinful humanity is drowned in the outpouring of water. At this table, we receive new life in the outpouring of God's love.